the next chapter in sun science and what's the matter with antimatter you're listening to are we there yet the radio show exploring space exploration hi i'm brendan byrne there are now two spacecraft zooming around the sun exploring our closest star NASA's Parker Solar Probe is getting an up-close and personal look at the sun and its corona, the wispy bits that radiate off the surface, and the recently launched Solar Orbiter will explore the poles of the sun. All eyes are on the sun. Well, wait, not really. Don't actually look at the sun. Is this a new chapter of sun science? Our guest this week, Nikki Fox, says it is. She's director of NASA's Heliophysics Science Division and lead scientist on the Parker Solar Probe mission. We'll talk about the early findings of the mission and how all this sun science will help better life here on Earth. Then we're talking antimatter. It's hard to wrap our heads around nothing, so we'll talk to our expert panel about matters opposite on this week's edition of I'd Like to Know. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Rocket launches are beginning to feel the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. Spaceflight Now reports launches at the European-run spaceport in French Guiana, home to the Ariane 5, Soyuz, and Vega rockets, has been suspended in response to the virus. It's unclear just how long the pads will remain shut down and what effects it will have on launch operations moving forward. Meanwhile, in the U.S., SpaceX is proceeding with the launch of another batch of Starlink satellites from Kennedy Space Center this week, as NASA centers are urging employees to work remotely. ULA is also scheduled to launch a communications satellite for the newly created Space Force next week. So far, the company hasn't announced any delays due to coronavirus. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space, and give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at Space Brendan. NASA's Parker Solar Probe and ESA's Solar Orbiter are getting unprecedented views of the sun, exploring our closest star. What these missions will uncover about the sun will not only help the scientific community, but also help protect critical communication and GPS satellites we rely on every day. NASA's Nikki Fox is in charge of all the agency's sun science as the director of the NASA Heliophysics Science Division and is the lead scientist on the Parker Solar Probe mission. I sat down with Fox during a recent visit to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach to talk about the dawn of a new era of sun science. It's totally a new chapter. I mean, we have waited decades and decades to have measurements like this. It's long been dreamed of going into the sun's corona, which to me is just mind-blowing. You're going and studying an atmosphere of a star. I mean, you know, we think of the sun, it's a big bright ball in the sky, we think of it all the time, but it's a star. And so what we learn about that is also going to help us really understand other stars in other solar systems. And so, you know, it's it's a very exciting time. But we've, we've looked at the sun from every possible vantage point. We've looked in all different wavelengths. We've been really close, even in as close as the planet Mercury. But we've never gone into the region where all the magic happens. And so there are mysteries 
mysteries in the corona. For a start, it's 300 times hotter than the surface of the sun. Um, it's also that atmosphere that you see during a total solar eclipse. That is That plasma, that material, is continually accelerated. It suddenly gets accelerated, and it moves away from the star. And we really don't understand the mechanisms. There are many, many, many theories, as you can imagine. We're scientists. We love to come up with theories. But we've never been able to take the measurements to really be able to tell us what is going on that is causing our star to behave like this. And so um, it's a, a brand new chapter, Parker Solar Probe, um, right in close to the sun, uh, in the sun's corona, taking in situ measurements. Solar Orbiter now joining us um, that, that is going to go actually out of the ecliptic plane. And so of the, if you think around the sun's equator where all the planets are orbiting, Solar Orbiter is actually going to use Venus gravity assist to lift the orbit gradually until um, we can, for the very first time, image and see what's going on in the poles of a star. So, uh, yes, it's a great time to be a heliophysicist. Mm-hmm. Nikki Fox, as, as you mentioned, there have been other studies in the past, but within the past two or three years, we've had these two spacecraft launch uh, to get very close to the sun. Why now? What, what, what has made it so that these missions got the green light and, and they're able to carry out their mission? So a lot of it, I mean, there's been tremendous support for these missions um, for going on for decades, but really it took technology. It took us uh, the ability to be able to fly these missions. So for both um, Parker Solar Probe and for Solar Orbiter, heat shields, needing to have a heat shield that can withstand these these very big, not only big temperatures when you're close to the sun, but it's very cold out around Venus. And so you have to have something that is going to be able to go hot and cold and not change its properties. Um, For Parker Solar Probe, uh, we're up with temperatures of about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit on the front side of the heat shield. The main body of the spacecraft is a sort of balmy Florida February day of about (laughs) 82 degrees. Um, So, you know, you you have to have these, these incredible leaps in technology And if you think 1958 was when uh, it was first discovered that there was a solar wind by by Eugene Parker said, hey, I think this is is what's happening. It's continually moving away. And really since then, there's been a desire to go into the sun's corona. But if you think in 1958, not that I was here, neither were you, but in 1958, you see it on the movies, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had a, a, a phone in the kitchen and you went and dialed it with a rotary dial. And if you wanted, you know, maybe if the cord was long enough, you might make it to another room. Now think about when you have your iPhone and you hold it in your hand, just the sheer amount of technology um, that you have and you compare how we communicate now to how we communicated then. It took that kind of leap in technology, miniaturization. I mean, you do everything on your phone, probably everything but make a phone call, but everything <laughs> is done on your phone. And so... That would have been city blocks worth of, of, of computing power to be able to do that in 1958. Well, now we do just do that in the palm of your hand. So it was really waiting for the technology almost to catch up with scientists' dreams. And it's been nearly 60 years since the discovery of the corona and, and then flying through it. I mean, what are, what are we hoping to learn? What kind of questions are scientists like you hoping to answer from these missions? So the, the immediate questions, obviously you design your mission to answer the questions, was really why is the corona so much hotter? Why does it suddenly get this, we call it a temperature inversion? So instead, you know, you move away and suddenly instead of getting colder, it gets hotter. Um, and then why is it continually accelerated? Uh, why is it, you know, it's not just a, like pumping the gas on a car and then it just slows down. It is continually being accelerated. It moves out beyond all of the planets. In fact, it, it actually creates our protective 
active cavity in the Milky Way. So as we are orbiting, as the sun and all the planets are orbiting around in the galaxy, it's actually creating this almost windsock um, effect around our solar system. And that actually protects us from the vagaries of interstellar space. Mm -hmm. And so that is all driven by the solar wind. And that's that, you know, it carves out this, this protective bubble for us. And so there are questions of, you know, just, just why is it accelerated? Why is it continue heated? What causes um, these very energetic particles to suddenly get so energized that they move at half the speed of light? Um, they're the questions that we want, that we know we want to answer. Of course, with a mission like this, where you're going into to a region you've never been before, we expect to have a lot more questions to answer at the end of the mission than, than we have even now, which is always an exciting thing to do with science. And the Parker probe is, is sending data back. You're, you're gathering science from it. Um, what have scientists and heliophysicists like yourself learned, you know, in these first few chapters of, of, of the data coming back? So even on the very first orbit, we were surprised on some of the things we saw. Uh, there were some features that uh, just showed how much more structure and how much more activity there is, even in our first flybys. And of course, we're not uh, in our, our closest configuration yet, we've got a couple more Venus flybys to actually make us walk in very close. But even, you know, we were in a region where we thought, well, we might see some exciting stuff, you'll see something interesting. And all of this structure was in there. And, uh, you know, we, we saw all these little kinks in the magnetic field. Hmm. And at first we thought, well, maybe we're sort of in the neutral region and the just the this current sheet. So the region where you have a magnetic field flowing in one direction on one side and then flowing in the other direction on the other side. Maybe that's just sort of moving up and down over the top of the spacecraft. And that's why we're seeing all these little features. When we start putting all of the data sets together, you see what it isn't that the actual magnetic field is kind of curving back on itself in like an S shape. And it takes a lot of energy to actually twist a magnetic field. It's like, you know, trying to trying to twist a big rubber hose. It, it always wants to spring away again. You've got to put a lot of energy into doing that. So we don't know why those little kinks are there yet, but it is certainly like a smoking gun. If they start relaxing, you're going to let a lot of energy out into the solar wind. And so maybe that is that is, you know, the first kind of clue as to why we're seeing this heating and acceleration. Um, we've also started to see a big drop down in the amount of dust. There's, uh, there's always been this idea that there's a dust-free region around the sun um, because you've got all the light pressure and everything else that, hold it, that will hold that dust back. But we've never been able to see it because we're looking through the dust. And so, you know, you can't look through a forest. You actually have to go around the other side if you want to see the clearing. Um, and so we're, but we're already starting to see dust decrease, even though we're not close enough yet to, to really be, be seeing it. But a lot of the, um, the theories and things that were imagined, we're starting to see reasons for, for why they may be there, even on, in our first couple of orbits. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, you're just going to find out more and more, right? Yes, we anticipate. I mean, of course, we could be wrong, but right now we anticipate that um, these little features that we see will become just a lot more and a lot bigger as we get closer to the sun. And then what we'd like to know is what's actually causing them, what is making that magnetic field do a reversal, because magnetic fields don't like to do that. <laughs> they like to be straight. Right. So the, the solar orbiter, it's going to take a few years to get to where it needs mm -hmm. to be, but how will the solar orbiter kind of work in tandem with the Parker Solar Probe? So I'm excited actually about the early part of the mission when it's in the ecliptic plane. Um, so they ha we have a lot of instruments that are very similar on the two spacecraft in the in situ instruments. Uh, so we have very similar um, plasma instruments that are kind of measuring what's coming in the in the solar wind. Uh, we have high energy particle detectors that are looking for those um, high energy particles associated with transients like shocks or flares or big sort of solar storms. Um, and then we have uh, measurements of, of fields 
fields, both magnetic and electric fields. And so we have very complementary instruments. So for me right now, we're in the same plane. We're actually looking at a lot of the same features. And there are many interesting configurations. You can have them radially aligned. You can have them where we think they're on the same magnetic field line, which is a sort of spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have things where they're in quadrature, where one is looking at the side and the other's looking at the front. There's loads and loads and loads of really interesting configurations. So from the, the get-go, I think it's amazing to have the two of them there. Mm-hmm. As um, solar orbiter kind of precesses and comes out of the ecliptic, their science will go much more to the, you know, observing the poles. They've got a whole suite of remote sensing, all cameras that are looking in different wavelengths. And, and I think that's very complementary because now they're taking images, they're looking at, they're really telling us what we're flying past um, as, we're, as we're zipping past. You know, you can start getting really high-resolution views of, uh, of the sun as Parker is in really close. So they're incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. complementary. This is going to be a simple question, I think, with a complex answer, but why study the sun in the first place? So the sun, many reasons. Uh, the sun is our star, and so studying the, the sun gives you a lot of information about how stars work in general. But we here on Earth, we live in the atmosphere of the sun. So as that solar wind is accelerated and the coronal material starts to move away, it bathes all of the planets. And so we literally live in the atmosphere of the sun. So if you see, a, if you have a big coronal mass ejection or a big event, it can come and impact us here at Earth. A visible sign of it, of course, is the northern and southern lights, and very, very beautiful, and we get excited. I started my career studying the northern lights, and so I'm you know, big, big fan of the aurora. But um, the aurora is a current system in the sky, and it looks for something to, to close. You know, you have to, a current has to be able to close. And so if the, if the ground is not c- uh, conducting, it will look for something else to flow through, like a pipeline or a power grid. And so as we become more and more reliant on technology, we actually are more susceptible to the vagaries of the sun. Um, satellites, we all use you know, satellite communications. Um, we take it for granted. Uh, your GPS signals, all this kind of stuff. Everything that we do now is so much more technology-based um, that we really do need to understand it so we can protect our planet and protect our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was a very famous event in 1959. It was called the Carrington Event, and it was the first time that that we knew that uh, the Earth and the Sun were really linked. You know, Carrington saw this big flash of light while he was sketching a sunspot, and uh, a few hours later. Um, compass needle span and you know a terrible thing at the time the telegraph system in the u.s went down for four days now i talk to my you know kids i have young kids myself and i say the telegraph system went down for four days and they just look at me like oh okay and then i say no text for four days no text no internet (laughs) no you know fortnight battle royale nothing for four days and they're oh that's terrible you know so so um it's again it changes how it shows as technology matures you know, th- we, we rely on it more and more. And so studying our sun is, is really important, but it's also really cool. It's mm-hmm. a star, we're studying it, and we're learning fundamental physics. Mm-hmm. So protection and prediction of these events so we can prevent bad things from happening to our cell phones, right? Absolutely, and not just our technology. I mean, as NASA, you know, moves forward with the Artemis program to, uh, to you know, move forward to the moon and then Mars and beyond, um, really the safety of our astronauts is our number one priority at NASA. It always has been. Um, they will then be spending, for the first time, extended amount of time outside low Earth orbit. Uh, you're in the moon. The moon spends a lot of time outside the protective bubble of, of our Earth's magnetic field. It's in what we call the pristine solar wind. So whatever is coming from the sun is going to impact them there. And as they move on to Mars, that's an even longer journey, longer time in the solar wind. So the criticality of really understanding the environment that they 
are living and working in and what can happen to it driven by what's coming from the sun is is really important and for me a very exciting you know we're all very excited in the agency about this um the artemis program uh but just you know for for me in heliophysics we have a real support role um in making sure that that we have the data and the measurements necessary to to protect those astronauts would the solar wind just affect electronics or could it harm astronauts physiologically do we know so we do know um, when we have very energetic particle events uh, that they, they can cause uh, damage for, for astronaut health, um, cellular damage. It can cause uh, problems for, for your eyesight. Um, you know, eventually, uh, the, longer you, the longer you are there, the, the more serious it is. Um, and so it, it becomes very imperative that, that you can, number one, design the capsules so that um, there are, you know, they can protect themselves. And there's some great designs of, of uh, right now of, of these small capsules but you know they basically take pieces apart and and you know build a shelter and they're incredible technology um, that NASA is doing uh, to to really um, help with the astronaut protection but for for me it's making sure that we can do the right amount of prediction so when you see something there on the sun you know that you know in x hours days whatever the right number is for whatever the phenomena what they are going to be seeing and so that they can take those mitigation steps um to be able to do it. What's on the horizon for, no pun intended, there for, uh, for heliophysics now that there's these two kind of flagship missions collecting science? What are you most excited about in the next 5, 10, 15 years in this field? Uh, so definitely the, the seeing the, uh, the maturing of this science discipline. I also should note that um, the National Science Foundation have just switched on the Daniel K. Inoue teles- uh, Space Telescope, or Solar Telescope, sorry, um, that is taking, if you look at those first light images, um, they are just spectacular. This this detail on the sun and each of the cells that you can see is about the size of Texas. So it's just an incredible um, tool. So, so it's really those three for me, because gotcha. now we have DKIST on as well. All the other solar telescopes also providing great information. And, and our most recent flyby of Parker Solar Pro was actually visible from the Earth. So, so basically where uh, the spacecraft was flying, you could actually oh. see that location on the sun. And I think we had over 100 ground-based um, observatories that turned oh, wow. on and, and observed in some way or another to really, you know, uh, do these campaigns. So I'm, I'm most looking forward to using the fleet. And so, you know, heliophysics has a fleet of spacecraft. It's not just the sun. We have them in the magnetosphere, in the ionosphere. We're studying every impact. We have the voyages, of course, that have, are in interstellar space. And so looking at how this system works together is the thing I find the most interesting. It's great to understand the star and it's great to do that, but, but really understanding how that is driving what we're seeing in other parts of our solar system. Also working with our planetary colleagues to look at, you know, well, if, hey, we saw this on the sun, what did we see at Mars? What did we see at Jupiter? Did we, did we see anything? What is New Horizons seeing all the way out in the Kuiper Belt? You know, how do we put all of these things together? And so I think that's, that's for me, is a very exciting thing. We have a lot of new missions that, um, you know, we've recently selected that will be coming online, um, uh, small spacecraft that are going to be uh, imaging the sun and, and providing really great measurements again to, uh, to support some of our solar observatories. Um, we have a, a mission that's going to be flying through the, the, the northern hemisphere cusp region, which is essentially the funnel region where all of the energy from the solar wind comes in. So it's again, it's that cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Putting all these things together is, is a, just a really, really cool thing. 
Um, also, we recently discovered that terrestrial weather has a profound impact on, on our ability to communicate. So uh, there's now a region where solar weather, space weather is coming in kind of from above, and then you have all the terrestrial weather that's forcing from below, and they actually interact. We didn't know that till quite recently, that they actually have an interaction region, and it can cause... Um, well, we, air glow is the sort of visible sign of it, but it can cause like bubbles that will stop you being able to communicate, you know, send your signals through. So um, it's a whole new area that we've just started to look in. So, uh, yeah, there's loads and loads and loads of great science to be done. Nikki Fox, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. That was Nikki Fox, director of NASA's Heliophysics Science Division and lead scientist on the Parker Solar Probe mission. Special thanks to Embry-Riddle for hosting us for that conversation. Still to come, what's the matter with antimatter? Our expert panel of physicists unpack the mystery around antiparticles. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Antimatter is a fundamental principle of physics, but it's tough to understand. To help wrap our head around this complex topic, we're joined by our expert panel of physicists, Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney are scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Josh kicks off the conversation about the matter of antimatter. One of the happiest moments of my life was when I discovered that it was a real thing and not just something in Star Trek. <laughs> so that's why you care. <laughs> yeah. uh, so antimatter is, is the nemesis of all matter, though. It is. The nemesis yeah. of all matter. I like this. Because if you have matter and antimatter that combine, they annihilate each other. Ooh, okay, conflict. I like that. Right. But what is it? (laughs) This happens in reality. Well, every particle has an antiparticle uh, where their their properties are opposite. So an electron, the antimatter version of an electron is called a positron. It has a positive electric charge. Are there other quantum properties of these that are opposite in the antimatter state as well? There are some other properties that are opposite. So uh, for an electron, it's just the charge. For quarks, quarks also have anti-quarks, right? So there are... Up and down quarks, top and bottom quarks, strange and charm quarks, and there are anti-up quarks and anti-down quarks. Quarks also have a funny charge called a color charge, and that is also opposite for uh, antimatter. And quarks are the think the building blocks of protons and neutrons, which right. are what make up the nuclei. Mm-hmm. So you could build an anti-proton. Right. Uh, and Out of an, anti-quarks. Out of anti-quarks. And then you could have an anti-electron, and then you could build... An anti-hydrogen atom. That would be awesome. You could build an anti-hydrogen huh. atom. And But one of the interesting things about so in antimatter, as Eddie was saying, is that uh, if you take two identical uh, uh, particle of matter and its antimatter counterpart, they annihilate and all of that matter gets converted to energy, obeying Einstein's famous equation equals mc squared is a huge amount of energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's an interesting question about at the origin of the universe – how come there weren't equal amounts of matter and antimatter created in the Big Bang, because which would have were, then entirely, yeah. It would entirely have decim- – there wouldn't be a universe to be, be talking any, about, really. There would just be just photons. Be energy. All, hmm. the, all the matter and antimatter would have annihilated, and, yeah, and, and there's this tiny, tiny amount. It's troublesome because the laws of physics are symmetric as far as matter and antimatter are concerned. So there really should be – Equal amounts of equal both. Equal amounts of both. Huh. And the fact that there isn't – I mean that, like I said, that's great for us. That's why we exist. There was, there were, there weren't equal amounts, but why we don't really and, still understand. And the, we the always difference. get existential. At least one of these. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We <laughs> well, and the difference in the amount, they, because there was a lot of antimatter and matter, but not quite 
oh. exactly equal amounts. It's not like it was a universe of matter and no antimatter. It was it was almost perfectly equal, but like it was like forty nine point nine to 50.1. Is all of this theoretical, or have, have have scientists observed antimatter? Have you seen it? Have you collected it? Not Why do personally. we know it's there? You didn't bring any with you, Eddie. I Addie? didn't bring any with me. Yeah. Sorry, it's dangerous. Yeah. There are lots of, uh, are... of processes in nature which actually produce antimatter. Uh, radioactive decay is one. In fact, uh, if uh, you've been a little unfortunate, you might have gone to a hospital and had a PET scan. A PET scan stands for positron emission tomography. So it actually uses antimatter. Hmm. Uh, you in, are injected with some kind of radioactive isotope, which when it decays, one of the things it produces is a positron. But a positron, of course, is going to immediately meet an electron. An electron. And yeah. they annihilate, producing a huge amount of energy. And then they put you in a big chamber that detects that energy. And then they can map where that So some people have had antimatter inside, inside of it. Yeah, if you're getting a PET scan, you're sort of like the warp core on the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Put that on my LinkedIn, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, all sorts of natural processes produce these particles. And we produce them in particle accelerators. So they're very well studied. And, um, and, under- and in particle accelerators, we're trying to produce new types of antimatter, look for new interactions that we see that produce these antimatter particles um, in order to, to understand them better and to see how stable some of them might be. When you say particle accelerator, what do you, what do you mean? So like CERN, okay. um, things where you're doing really high energy uh, particle collisions and producing weird byproducts. Yeah, if you want to produce all the cool things in nature, what you do is you take two regular things, speed them up, and smash them into each other as fast as you possibly can. And then you can produce all the cool, Mm -hmm. fun things that come out of it. And and, and in a simple-minded way, which is my favorite kind of way, (laughs) uh, the the reason that works is because of that same equivalence between energy and mass. Mm -hmm. So if you get a couple of particles going at crazy, crazy, crazy high speeds, there's a huge amount of energy, and that matter gets converted into energy, which can then become a new set of particles. Hmm. And so... Stuff can go back and forth between the matter state and the energy state. And in that shower of particles, we see new things like they saw the Higgs boson, but we see antimatter particles. And trying to understand that that little tiny imbalance in the beginning of the universe is one of the interesting questions. And recently, we, uh, we the collective human, we made uh, some antimatter hydrogen atoms. Hmm. So what's, what's the big question that scientists are hoping to answer by better understanding antimatter? It's this uh, – one of them is this breakage of the symmetry that uh, Jim alluded to mm-hmm. is that the laws of physics are very symmetric. But at a sort of billion-to-one ratio, there was this asymmetry. And it's in narr- chasing down these little tiny differences frequently that lead to the, like fundamental uh, changes in our understanding of how the universe works. So Einstein's general rel- theory of relativity explained this little tiny sort of error out in the – nth digit of the orbit of Mercury at one point, and now it's completely fundamentally altered our understanding of the way the universe works and had all sorts of practical implications as well. And so chasing down all those little, funny little differences hidden in there could be some some secrets and clues to bigger questions about how the universe works. That was Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this podcast or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast. 
You might have noticed this podcast sounds a little bit different from previous episodes. Well, that's because I'm recording it from my home office. Stay safe in these times of coronavirus. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Danielle Pryor. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. And never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker by subscribing to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or the dozens and dozens of other podcast apps at your disposal. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Stay safe and thanks for listening.